0: We are going to actually now see the grown-up Jesus. We're going to in- be introduced to the grown-up Jesus today. Uh, we've, we've looked at his infancy narratives and growing up, and we've looked at the ministry of John the Baptist. We left off last week with the Baptist ministry calling Israel to repentance in preparation for the coming of the king. Be true, Israel. And, and that's where we left off. And now we're going to see John and Jesus' ministries intersect for the first time. And we're going to look at Jesus' baptism and his temptation or testing in the wilderness. Um, And the synoptic synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all contain, well at least all three contain the baptism of Jesus. And Matthew and Luke have detailed accounts of the temptation of Jesus, Mark just sort of (coughs) mentions it. We're going to look at Matthew's account. Now, we'll bring up Luke occasionally just to flesh some things out, especially when we get to uh, the temptation. But for the most part, we're going to stick with Matthew this morning. And again, when we do the life of Christ, we have to make choices. And I'm the teacher. I get to choose. So we're going to look at Matthew's account. So in Matthew chapter 3, and we're going to go into chapter 4. So we're going to look at both of those. You see the outline (coughs) We look at confirming Christ's messiahship and then confronting. I was going to put contorting, uh, but I thought the F in. Yeah, you know, I just kept it. So, but we'll get to why I would have chosen that word as well. And it's important to know that when Jesus is baptized, this is not the be, like his. This is where he begins being the Son of God, or this is when he begins being who he is. There are heresies throughout the history of the church. Uh, that, that, that teach that, that with the coming of uh, the Holy Spirit uh, as a dove to Jesus, that's when God sort of adopted him as his son, those sorts of things. Uh, so it's not making him these things. This is a confirmation and a coronation, if you want to think of it, at the beginning of his public ministry. Um, and we start seeing him come to, understand, to the understanding of what he knows, of who he is, and now having to be obedient to be obedient to being that suffering servant, to fulfill that role, to know what's coming, to be who he is, knowing it's going to lead to the cross. So we're going to see him now having to do that. So, uh, having just heard about John's baptism, and John having just said that I baptize you with water, but there's one coming after me who will baptize you, who's more powerful, I'm not, I'm not even worthy to untie a sandal will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. All right. So given that and what he's just said, and it's been, been a message of judgment as well to Israel, saying there's going to be a winnowing, and what we think of as the, this great day of the Lord where we're going to destroy all the pagans, it's going to begin with you. Having said that, now we're introduced to to Jesus. Sounds like this guy should be, you know, bounding down the mountains around the Jordan on a great steed. Here he comes to say, thank you, John. Now I will take over. But that's not what happens. So let's look at this episode. First, the baptism in chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Ready, Jay? Ready. All right. That's how you know it's Sunday. There you go. Then
1: Jesus came from Galilee to John and on the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by by you, and do, do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now. For it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he and, and when Jesus had been baptized just, <clears throat> just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened on him, to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and light and a lightning on him. And a voice from heaven, and a voice from the heaven said, This is my son, the beloved, whom I am well pleased.
0: Nope, you're good. You did great. Thank you, sir. Uh, Probably familiar passage to all of us. Uh, The setting, of course, we've already looked at. We looked at the setting last week. Uh, John baptizing in the Jordan. Again, that symbolic thing of them once again coming across the Jordan, having gone through the Red Sea, across the Jordan into the Promised Land, sort of (laughs) reenacting that, coming to the waters of baptism. A baptism of repentance. Remember, they are to repent and then be baptized. John even even chastises uh, some who come just wanting to go through the motions, thinking that's going to do it, and says, no, you've got to have fruit in keeping with repentance. So knowing this is a baptism of repentance, John is startled that Jesus would come. seems the logic of John's argument is that, well, look, this is, You know, whereas the the Pharisees and Sadducees wanting to go through the motions weren't worthy of this baptism, he's saying, my baptism's not worthy of you. You don't need to repent. In fact, you should be baptizing me. I should be baptized by you. And the last we heard Jesus speak was in uh, Luke's account of Jesus at the temple. And he said, I have to be about my father's business. I have to be in my father's house. And now we have the first words since then that we have recorded. So here's Jesus, and these are the first words we have recorded of him since that episode. And here he's basically saying, no, this is part of my father's business. So his answer has has generated quite a bit of speculation as to what exactly he means, but I think we can come to some understanding. Because John sees him and says, I need to be baptized by you. But Jesus said, for right now, no, this is right. Okay, no, permitted at this time. This is this, this fitting for us to fulfill our righteousness. He's basically saying, well, for right now, he said, you know, kind of, well, yeah, normally maybe, but for right now, this is part of God's plan. This is, you and I doing this is part of me and me inaugurating the kingdom, this coming in, this needs to happen. And why would it need to happen? There's a big question, right? A lot of people would say, why was Jesus baptized? Well, obviously not because he needs to repent of sin. That's not the case. Remember, though, this is a national symbol of renewal of Israel. That's what John is doing. And here you have the Messiah coming to identify with His people. To identify with them in their coming out saying, we want to be Israel. Here you have the beloved Son coming as embodied Israel, identifying with His people. He's saying this has to take place because this is the beginning. And once He's baptized... Then we have this beautiful moment of, of, we have a Trinitarian moment. Did you see that? You have the Son, you have the Holy Spirit, and you have the Heavenly Father. Now again, the doctrine of the Trinity, over the course of church history, it was was people having to come to grasps with all three are worshipped and all three are God. How can that be? Because of the witness of Scripture. The Trinity as a doctrine is not laid out like we would want it in Scripture, because no one says, okay, now I'm going to tell you about the Trinity. It's us looking at Scripture and through the history of the church, coming to the understanding that God must be three in one. See what I mean? Three three persons, one God. And here you have one of those moments that forces the church to say, what is going on here? And it's a beautiful moment, because Jesus comes out of the water, and at that, at that moment, we have the Holy Spirit descending as a dove, the heavens open up. Notice it's the heavens, and we have a tendency, of course, to think of, I don't know, you know, you, when we're, you know, we think of earth, heaven, there's God, hole in the sky, dove drops out, kind of thing. Um, I mean, and, you know, that's, that's, that's how we kind of tend to think rather than the heavens, the idea of the realm of God manifesting itself. Suddenly, in whatever way, we're not told, we're told like Ezekiel experienced something like this, John on the island of Patmos experiences this, but basically, think of it in our scientific age, here's a rift in space-time where you have heaven and earth coming together, and at this moment, you have the holy spirit coming to jesus in this form of a dove now was this literal it says like a dove although in luke's account he says in bodily form as a dove so i'm just going to go with that now is the holy spirit a dove well no but that symbolic nature of the dove is important now did jesus jesus didn't have the holy spirit in this until this time and you would answer of course he did yeah of course he did no of course Of course he had the Holy Spirit. Yeah, we're told that at his birth. So that's not what's going on here. What you have here is an empowering, kind of an, an anointing for this ministry now to begin. Yes?
2: The opening of the heavens was probably a precursor of the curtain being ripped into later
0: and a precursor like the Transfiguration where we have sort of the same thing going on here, same wording, yeah. And the dove, you know, that's going to have a lot of associations with people. (laughs) Dove was a clean animal. It was offered for sacrifices for sin. There's one. You have that aspect. Remember the dove in in the Count of Noah, a sign of redemption and deliverance that this is happening. So you have that. The rabbis at the time, and scholars at the time, pictured the Holy Spirit at creation hovering in the form of a dove. So you have a lot of things going on here, and the contrast that it's not a dragon, all right? And you think, what? Well, he's just said, there's one coming after me who baptized you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You know, and that hints the image of, here comes Jesus down the hill on his steed, and No, and here you have this beautiful sign of peace and redemption and innocence, not a fire-breathing dragon. Now that's just me putting that in there, but you mean, that's kind of, we would expect something like that. We're so used to the story though that we just go, oh yeah, dove, but having said what he said and the people's expectations of the Messiah, a dove? Yeah. We're so used to it, though. Yes? That leads me to
2: ask, did the other people there, all those multitudes, did they see the dove? Did they understand it as
0: the Holy Spirit? And no, that's good. Those are great questions. Did, Jesus, the, the question is, the did, the, did the other people see this? And if so, did they understand the significance? And hear the voice And hear. Right. It would appear from this context here that, yes, others saw. Now, not who, how many, we don't know. And because in Matthew's account, you know, this is my beloved son, not you are my beloved son, as in Luke's account, it appears that, there, that others would have heard this. Now, how much they understood at the time, it would depend. Uh, we read in John that even John himself said, I, I, I recognized him when, I, when this happened in, in John, the, John the Apostle's account about John the Baptist, sorry. A lot of Johns. Um, so, how much people heard and saw, that's debated, but it appears that others did. How much they understood, though, will come with time. Yeah. But it wasn't just the sign confirming this of the dove, we also have a voice. Now remember, um, people had thought the Holy Spirit, and, and, and rightly so, had ceased speaking to prophets for centuries. And now you see the rebirth of this, and now they hear a voice, and Jesus hears the voice of his Father. And here, it's a, it's a combination of, of some things from Scripture. You have, you have from Psalm 2, which is a, a royal psalm about coronation. Um, the first part of that, you know, uh, my beloved son, we read that in Psalm 2 about the coronation. So you have that, the, the Davidic king aspect. And then you also have the suffering servant. So here you have melded, even with what the father tells the son, of a combination of, this is the king of the line of David with whom I am well pleased and in, in whom I delight. That is from Isaiah 42. from the the suffering servant, and you also hear overtones of when God called um, Abraham to sacrifice his son, I want you to take your son, your only son, whom you love, you hear, so there's a lot of stuff, a lot of, there's a lot of overtones in this, it's not just saying, that's my boy, okay, it's not, that's not just it, there's, there's more to this, And, of course, Matthew and Luke want us to to recognize that and hear it. So you have this beautiful Trinitarian moment at this confirming and coronation and beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Him identifying with his people Israel, which is going to be important because Israel failed. They didn't follow through on being the beloved son. We read in Exodus when, when God is telling Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and I want you to tell him that I'm going to deliver my son, my only begotten son, Israel. And of course, they are delivered and then fail spectacularly in being what they're supposed to be and who they're supposed to be. Here you have the son in the flesh, Jesus, the Messiah, embodied Israel, who will not fail the beloved son. And that of course is all precursor to having just received this, now as Israel was tested in the wilderness after their deliverance from Egypt, we see now Jesus, on the cusp of his ministry, tested. So before we go on to that, questions, comments, those kinds of things. Yes, sir?
2: The, the interaction with John the Baptist point out at the initiation of Jesus' ministry that he is sacrifice, priest, and king. The sacrifice, of course, John says, behold the Lamb of God, Right. to Abraham. The, the king is because he's... Coronation, but the priest part may be a little bit more difficult to see. But um, I, I've I've had to, I've struggled with fulfill all righteousness statement by Jesus, but Jesus as a priest would not be Levitical. He wasn't of the line of Levi; he was the line of Judah. But there was a priesthood that superseded the Levitical priesthood. And that's Melchizedek, and and what I've read, at the, about age 30, if you were going to be in the priesthood of Melchizedek, then you had to be baptized as part of the process of being recognized as a priest in that line. And so fulfillment of righteousness really points to the fact that God is a God of process. He uses hmm. the processes, and he does it the right way. He doesn't shortcut it. He does the right thing for processes because that all points to the end result.
0: To his final fulfillment as that high Lord, priest. Yes. yes, very good. Bringing in Hebrews here. Y'all recognize the priesthood of Melchizedek. Um, the writer of Hebrews, of course, trying to show the superiority of Christ's priesthood to that of the Levitical priesthood. And I didn't know anything about the, the 30-year-old and the baptism thing. So, we're going to take your word for it. (laughs) That's how cults start, you know. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we pay for. Rabbis, they would become active in the Jewish tradition at about age 30. Age 30, right. So, what we have here, what what was brought up is this whole idea of the sacrifice, king, and priest as well, all three. So, that's great. Appreciate that. Now, knowing what he's been told, now just think about, you know, think of us for a second. Now, this is on a very small scale, right? Let's just been, so you've been told, you know, you're all that. You know, we've just had a moment where, you know, it happens with elected officials often, right? They love me, they want me, they elected me, me. And now, what are you going to be? Are you going to now, then the temptations that come along, are you going to use this position for your own self? me Are you gonna you gonna cash in all the lobby points now? Uh, in other words, there's always this this pinnacle peak followed by it seems. All right, what are you gonna do with it? A test. Now this is not unusual. This happened with Israel. We're told in in Deuteronomy that why you know they're they're in the wilderness for forty years because of disobedience, but we're also told Mo, Moses says that. It's because this was a time of testing to see if you would be obedient, and be the people I've called you to be. And as I've already said, they ended up failing rather spectacularly. Here now we have that test, this confronting the messiahship. And I, I, and I wanted to say like contorting because you're now gonna have the enemy, the tempter, the, the Satan, the devil, and all of those are used here, by the way. We're, look at that in a moment, coming to do just that. To, he's not doubting Jesus' messiahship or sonship. He says, if you are the son of God, since you are is, is, the, is the appropriate understanding, then why don't you, and you know how subtle temptation is. That's how that works. And this, of course, harkens also back to the garden, Right? Did God really say, you know, and and they saw that it was good for this and that, and so it's always subtle, and we're going to read about this temptation in the wilderness. Now, the wilderness is most likely the east, east wilderness uh, from the Jordan River near the Dead Sea, it even had a name that meant desolate, Uh, that kind of wilderness, and it was in the wilderness, in the desert, that was thought that's where demons came from, that's where demons resided, so... The setting is rather stark. And you're going, to hear, you're going to hear a lot of things that are familiar from previous episodes in Scripture as well, especially regarding the 40 days. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read it in chunks. We'll read it one test at a time, if you want to think of it that way. So while we have the whole passage before us, 1 through 11, we'll read it in chunks. So first of all, let's read, Verse 1 through 4. 1 through 4.
2: Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he, that is Jesus, answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God.
0: Awesome. I've always wondered, um, you know, we're reading this, and obviously Matthew had, where did he hear this? I mean, we, we don't stop to think of, you know, how did he know? Well, Jesus probably told them. In other words, his disciples, he's telling them of all that happened. Uh, Luke, of course, researched it later. But here you have, in other words, we need to ask ourselves, wow, this was probably Jesus telling them about this and giving background and helping them to understand what was going on. Which is, you know, we, 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 don't, we just forget that sometimes. Um, and in this case, notice we're told he's led by the Holy Spirit. So this is intentional. He didn't just go wandering off. Uh, the, you know, Satan didn't tug him out, he was led by the Holy Spirit. This is part of God's plan to be tested, tempted by, look at the agent, however, to be tested by, tempted by the devil. Does that sound familiar? Not <laughs> <your> own, <laughs> My life, okay, no, um, so right? Right, God does not tempt to evil, and we have an example, of course, in Job, that that old, old book of the Old Testament, where God allows the testing, but the agent is the fallen one, the deceiver, Satan. Um, The Greek term, diabolos, is where we get devil, and you hear diabolic and all of that coming from there, and that that means deceiver for the most part, Uh, and... Satan is Satan, it's the Satan, Hasatan in Hebrew. That's the Hebrew term. And that means accuser. And both have, have similar meanings of adversary as well. That term Satan was not a proper name per se in the Old Testament, but a description. The accuser, the one who comes before God to accuse his people. Yes?
1: So this might be where he's going, but uh, oh. it was
2: also interesting. we're just thinking about why does God, Jesus who's already perfect, but say, and Jesus grew in God's favor. We also notice in Job that it said, Satan's been going, he says, have you considered my servant Job? Sort of, so I, I see a little parallel there as
0: well. Interesting, it, yeah. right. And this is, it is one of those things too where we're thinking about Jesus and being tempted and all those things. Uh, you know, speaking of Hebrews, the, the writer of Hebrews tells us that though he was a son, he learned obedience through what he went through. We have a tendency, um, and it's interesting because we are so far removed from the events of, that actually happened, we have a tendency to overemphasize Jesus' divinity and underemphasize his humanity. Whereas the early church, because he was there, they had trouble understanding his divinity so to know, to learn that he had to grow up and he had to learn and he had to go, he had to learn, he had to be obedient and to do things that we as humans do, we, that kind of shakes us a little bit. But it reaffirms as well our understanding that Jesus is both fully divine but fully human, yet without sin. Which is always, there's all that weird tension. So, well, could he be tempted? Well, according to this, Yes. You know, there's a lot, of, a lot of speculation, was Jesus not able to sin or able not to sin? Those are the questions of impeccability and those sorts of things, but which was it? A lot of folks say, well, no, he's, he's God, he, he wasn't able to sin. But then people would say, well, if that's the case, then he's not tempted. There's no temptation if, if there's no chance of going wrong. Or people say, well, no, he was just able not to sin. And then that leads to folks being nervous about, well, wait a minute. Uh, you know, is, so he's like us, he had a sin nature? And I think perhaps my way forward through this is that you had those perfect humans in the garden, no sin nature at that time, who were capable of obedience and disobedience, but no sin nature. Um, and, and being fully human, in that sense, that's how I kind of, that helps me to understand how he could be tested, tempted, in every, and we're told in every way we are, yet without succumbing. More tempted than us. Our temptation ends because we usually succumb. <laughs> Does that make sense? We only go so far and then, all right. Well, we yeah. live we're in the wilderness. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Where were we? Oh, yeah, the, the names, um, Satan and, and, and devil, and also we're, we're told, you know, the tempter. So in the same way, too, we're, how are we to picture this going on, right? How is this staged? You know, in Jesus movies and all those sorts of things. How does this happen? And not, we're not given enough detail to figure out how all of this happens. Are they sitting down having a talk? You know, how did this work? Um, was it just internal? Uh, again, if, if Matthew learned this and the, the apostles learned this from Jesus, he, even he perhaps doesn't provide those answers. But it's real. That's the thing. And we live in a world that goes, eh, devil, come on. You mean you believe in a guy in a red suit and horns with a pitchfork and all that stuff? Well, no. I don't believe that. I don't think you do either. Those are all accretions over time that are almost caricatures. But a real, a real spiritual force of evil? Yes. I think that's the only way to make sense of our world. That there is a battle. And notice right away, right away, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, who shows up first? Here he comes. Here comes the accuser. Here comes the deceiver. Here comes the tempter. A lot of people wonder why there's so much demonic activity early on in the New Testament, and then it just kind of fades away. It's because you have God incarnate on the scene, and the devil knows what's coming. So the battle becomes a lot more incarnate, if you want to think of it that way. Much more visible, spiritual warfare while God incarnate is on the earth. And then it goes back to how it was and how it is. It's still going on though. You and I are tempted in in many of the same ways and that battle still goes on and it's fun to read how Jesus of course combats the tempter, the enemy, the deceiver, the slanderer and he does it with scripture. Everything is from Deuteronomy 6-8 through where Moses is recalling the experience in the wilderness and how they failed. They grumbled about food. God gave them manna, but they grumbled about that. They grumbled, they, they flirted with idolatry and gave in to idolatry, worshiping false gods. You recall the episode of the golden calf. And, of course, the, by the same token, um, they... Where was, I? where was I going? I don't know where I was going. That's what you have, happens when you have too many notes. Oh, there it is. They also, of course, tested God. You know, give us water. You know, Moses struck the stone and they tested him. So in those ways, we see Israel doing the same things that Jesus now is faced with. But in this case, Jesus, where Israel fails... He succeeds, he being true Israel, the king of Israel, the Messiah. And he counters at every turn with words from Deuteronomy in those instances where they failed in the same way he is. So here's the first is hunger. It's 40 days, 40 nights. He's hungry. There's nothing unusual about that. (laughs) just skip breakfast and you're already hungry (coughs) this idea of 40 days of course harkens to the 40 years in the wilderness of Israel it also conjures images of Moses being 40 days on the mountains receive the commandments fasting Ezekiel I mean not Ezekiel uh, Elijah 40 days fleeing from Jezebel to Mount Horeb fasting so there's a lot of this resonance here and it wouldn't be lost on them. It's not just, you know, well, 40 days. In other words, there is, there is some symbolism to this. And especially like the 40 years of the wilderness wandering. And grumbling about food. And here, of course, that's where Satan goes first. To the appetite. He goes, since you're the son of God, just, he wouldn't want you to be hungry. Just turn these stones into bread. And of course, Jesus counters with, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, which is why Israel in the wilderness had to to deal with manna. God wanted them to understand that it's more than the belly, more than food. Obedience and His word is sustaining. Notice the temptation is to, to use this position of prestige and power to short circuit the long road, the obedience, to be the suffering servant. This is going to lead to the cross, the way of the cross. Why not just cut to the chest? He doesn't want you to be hungry. So that's the first. Now in Luke's account, the next two are flipped. They're switched. Most scholars believe that Matthew's account is probably the order Luke changed them to the end with Jerusalem because Luke's always pushing Jesus to Jerusalem in his narrative. And then in Acts, from Jerusalem out. So to Jerusalem, then Jerusalem out. But they're the same temptations. Yes, sir?
2: This first temptation really kind of asked Jesus not to be fully human. You're hungry, you're God. Just make yourself some food. <laughs> so in a way, this temptation is to to tempt Jesus to not be fully human, not to use the material world to satisfy a material process of hunger. Right.
0: Just the way we do. Yes. Yeah, that's good. Again, that tension between full humanity and full divinity that we can't wrap our minds around. Well the second temptation he moves him now to, and again, it's it, it switched in Luke's account, but here, verses 5 through 7, someone read those. The second test. All right. So even the devil can quote scripture. There you go. It's always stunning, you know, for people to know. I'll guarantee you the devil knows the Bible better than you do. I mean, he's got a vested interest. Um, you know, and James even tells us hey, the demons believe and they tremble, they shudder. It's not as if they don't believe, they don't have saving faith, they don't trust in the Messiah, but they know who he is. And they don't like what's in scripture, but they know scripture. And of course, here he quotes accurately. He leaves out a little spot, all right? Now, some say, well, that's the deception that he leaves out something. But Matthew does the same thing, okay? Matthew quotes scripture and he leaves out stuff. So we got to be careful about going too far that he's twisted scripture by leaving out something. I think he's just showing, you know, hey, you know, that's what it says. Um, And this time, of course, it's the temple. If you are, since you are the Messiah, come on, don't do this long route of suffering and identifying with your people and dying for their sins and all these things. There's already people who are thinking that the Messiah will come down from the Mount of Olives and enter triumphantly into the temple and stand at the top of the temple. That's already out there. Just, so he says, all right, there you go. And not only that, just, just jump. Mm-hmm. Scripture says, you talk about spectacular. What, look at that. You know, the, the, the psalm says that you know, his angels will protect you. And the psalm in its original context is about all of us. God will be with us as we serve and go about serving Him. It doesn't mean that things aren't going to happen, but God will be with us to protect us. There's nothing there about, so you can do whatever you want.
1: Uh-huh.
0: You can go ahead and you know temp, test God. Just He's with you, so just jump out in front of that train. And of course, a lot of people say those kinds of things. They say, well, unless God does this, I'm not going to believe, or those kind of things. We don't know what we're asking for. This is an aside. Um, If God did those sorts of things, imagine what kind of world you're living in, where nothing would be predictable, nothing stable, because at every moment of every day for every person, conditions would be changing all the time. We would live in sort of a hodgepodge cacophony of miracles all over the place, and we wouldn't be able to live. We don't know what we're wishing for when we want these things. We want it for us. Just change it for us. You know. And here, of course, he's tempting him. He, he is going to go to the temple. His people are the temple. Here, of course, the temptation is just short-circuit that whole thing. God will protect you. And I love how Jesus responds. On the other hand, Scripture says this. Yeah. On the other hand, Scripture says this, uh, you shall not put the Lord God to your test, Mm -hmm. to the test. And of course, that is in reference to what, at the end of that verse in Deuteronomy says, as you did at Massa, meaning where where Moses had to strike the rock and all those things. Don't put God to the test. Israel failed. He passes The second test. Now the third, of course, is again what's going to happen. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is Lord over all nations. That will come to pass. So now, of course, the, the temptation is, hey, the ends justify the means. Just short circuit all that. And then he really just shows his cards, right? Satan just says, just bow down and worship me. And of course, therein lies a lot of literature in Western culture from then on out selling your soul to the devil. You could probably think of things you had to read in school, of that, that and then there's usually once a year another movie or there's some episodes. It's just a recurrent theme of get what you want. But, see what I mean? But sell your soul to the devil. Worship him. There's always a cost. And here he, he says, so I'll show, I, here it is, it's all yours. Which it's going to be anyway. And he says, all this is yours if you'll just fall down and worship me. And Jesus responds, first of all, be gone, Satan. Get out of here, scram. How Did any of you say be gone this week? <laughs> be gone. That's another one. Use that this week. Find a way to use that. Does that sound familiar? Who else does he say that to? Peter. Peter. <laughs> yeah. Again, Peter trying to short circuit God's plan. The long haul, the, the, the obedience to be a servant. Remember, Peter was saying, no, 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 no. And, and Jesus tells him, get behind me, Satan. Be gone. Go away. It's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And again, from Deuteronomy, recalling Israel's failure in serving other gods. And what's, what's great about how Matthew ends the account is that you have the fallen angel, the chief fallen angel, the deceiver, the slanderer, the tempter, the devil, Satan himself, there. And when he's gone, who shows up? The, angel. the real angels. You know, I mean, not, the, they show up and minister to Jesus. Israel failed. Jesus succeeds. Adam failed. Jesus succeeds, the new Adam, the new Israel, the Messiah, the testing. Now, that's not going to end. Of course, there's going to be further temptations and testing that, that there's, the devil's not just going to go, oh, well done. He got me. <laughs> um, doesn't happen that way. There's more to come. But this, this beautiful episode here on the heels of his baptism, demonstrating his willingness to be the obedient servant as the King of David, knowing what's going to happen in the long run. And thank God that he did. You and I will face temptation and always will. Notice is powerful, but it can be used both ways. Know your scripture so it's not twisted on you, so that you're not victim of the latest interpretation someone might have, or those kind of things. No Scripture, Scripture's powerful, but it can be used both ways. Notice, however, as well, that Jesus isn't alone either. He's got the Holy Spirit with him. You and I have the Holy Spirit too, to resist temptation. And finally, recognize that while he seems ubiquitous, Satan is not omnipresent or all-powerful. Most of his victories come because we are weak, not because he is strong. And that's a real understanding we need. He's not as strong as we think he is. Remember, he is defeated. But we give him often strength through our own weakness. So as we face temptation, and we will, And who knows where it will be? It's going to be subtle, it's going to be pervasive, but we have one who's gone through this for us and shows us how to be truly human. And that is, Sunday school answer? Jesus, good, all right, good, yes. (laughs) Yes, Sunday school answer, Jesus, good. See, you you could have gotten that. That was easy, you've heard the story of because we're so used to Sunday schooling. So I think I may have told this before, but the, the little kid in kindergarten? Mm-hmm. where squirrel. The squirrel? Have you heard this? No. No? Well, tell. Tell it. T- no, tell it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, well, um, and we'll end on this high spiritual note. Um, because they're so used to, you know, the answer always being Jesus, um, they, they were studying, you know, the ark and talking about animals, and and, and the Sunday school teacher says, and and what animal, and what lives in trees, and is, you know, is kind of gray, and has a furry tail, and eats nuts. And one little boy, they're all looking around, and one little boy says, yes, Johnny, well, sounds to me like a squirrel, but I'm sure the answer is Jesus. <laughs> 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 so,
1: <laughs>
0: anyway, pastor jokes. All right, any last thoughts, or, yes, sir?
2: have a question. Why yeah. do you think these particular three temptations?
0: You know, there's a lot of... that. Well, there's three things that Israel struggled with. Number one, um, you also have in early church history people talking about, you know, um, the, the major sins of, like, gluttony and boastful... You know, and you can go to James, right? Then the sins of the, sin. the lust of the eyes and... <laughs> The lust of the flesh, boastful pride of life, those things uh, parallels there as well. Um, also, the parallels sort of in Genesis with, you know, it was, it, looked good, it was good to look at, good for food, good for wisdom. So there's a lot of different parallels to these three major areas. My, my main understanding at least is that it parallels those areas where Israel failed. Spectacularly, but there's those other undercurrents as well. Oh, well, you want to know what I think? Yeah, 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 sure. No,
2: well, again, I, I think the first one is really about Jesus' temptation about humanity. Mm-hmm. I think the second one really talks about relationship, relationship between God and man, humanity and man, and, and about we're not to, to test God to, to try to manipulate God right. into doing what we want him to do in the relationship. I think the third one really speaks to divinity and the, you know Jesus not grasping equality with the Father but saying yeah. divinity is what it is and I'm not going to give up my divinity to use Satan but I'm going to not grasp the divinity to use it for my own purposes. I thought cool. that's what I
0: thought. No, it's good. I think there's... There's, you know, multivalence. This is the term they use in literature, but just valences of all those things, yeah. Anything else? Yes, sir.
2: In Ephesians 6, it talks about the full armor of God, and there's only one offensive weapon, the you other know, is the breastplate of righteousness, helmet of salvation, uh, shield of faith, all these things. There's only one offensive weapon. It's, uh, it's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so here's Jesus doing exactly that in spiritual warfare. Mm-hmm. Uh, And it serves as a good
0: example, I think. Yeah, no, it is. Yeah, yeah, we get that from Paul in Ephesians, yeah. And interestingly, we're told in that passage in Ephesians, Ephesians as well to stand firm. It's always stand firm. And here you have Jesus standing firm. Yeah, excellent. Don't give an inch. Which is hard to do. And that offensive weapon is available to all of us. Yes. And that's such a comfort. Especially now with our phones. (laughs)
1: <laughs>
0: and, if, if it, and, and if the last resort fails, just throw it at. It. Yeah,
1: just. Yeah, there yeah, you go. That's the way you do it. That's
0: what I love—I don't know how many of you've read uh, uh, C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, second book of which uh, Jesus, Jesus, uh, the, the main character has to deal with a satanic character, and eventually it just gets to a point where. He just goes out and gets fights him. Just that's it. So, at some point, i gonna throw down. And it was a very, it's a very physical. Look at that. Anyway, great books. All right, let's pray together. Oh, yes, sir. Uh, Betty Saunders passed away last night. Oh, huh? and that's who we, Betty Saunders? Yes, we were praying. For we prayed for her, right? Yes. yes. Okay.
2: It is right for us to pray for her.
0: Yep. Super. Let's pray together. It's with profound thanksgiving that we are here, knowing that uh, we are here because of your faithfulness and your grace. It's nothing about us that we deserve any of this, to be together, to be in this beautiful facility, to be where we are, when we are, uh, to have the blessings we have. And it's by grace alone. We're reminded of Israel in the wilderness, told that they would go to a land of, of, cisterns they didn't dig, and houses they didn't build, and crops they didn't plant, and there's that temptation to become arrogant in our, own, uh, in our own situation. So thank you, thank you, thank you that we get to be here together because of the faithfulness of so many who have come before us and the faithfulness that you demonstrate to us all the time. As we go through this week, we know that we will face temptation, that we too uh, will face battles. Our prayer is that we learn from this that we depend upon your Holy Spirit, that we take the entire scope of Scripture with us and we live the words we study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.